The reading is in Ruth 1, and you can find it on page 267. Naomi loses her husband and sons. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had another husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Thanks very much, Abigail. Uh, A warm welcome to you if you are new. My name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here. Uh, Lovely to see you. Uh, Just to say, my my voice doesn't normally sound like this, so um, um, I'm struggling slightly with a cold, so uh, yeah, I'm normally not this croaky uh, and and, uh, sounding like Barry White or anything like that. Uh, We're we're starting in a new series in Ruth, uh, so we're going to pray uh, together. It's a beautiful book. 
Uh, it's wonderful. As I was preparing this week, I was thinking, can I, can I do it justice? Uh, I probably can't, but we're going to look at it together uh, as we look at this beautiful story of how God uh, does not leave his people. So let's, play, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to read your word this evening and hear you speak to us, would you give us ears to hear? Please, would your word encourage those who need encouraging and comfort those who need comforting? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, we, as I said, we're beginning a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And over the four weeks, we'll be looking at this wonderful little book as it reveals to us how glorious the God that we worship is. It's called Hope uh, in the Darkness. Uh, and one of the big themes of the book is God's big plan to redeem a people for himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be seeing that theme in the following weeks. But tonight is slightly different. The question that Ruth chapter 1 raises this week uh, is, that, is where is God when we experience dark times in our lives? What happens when the darkness falls so hard? And we'll all face this question sometime in our Christian lives. Whether we're facing it now or in the future, we will all face it. Whether you're going through it now uh, or not, or whether you're supporting people who are going through it now. It was a question that William uh, Cooper faced. I know it sounds says Cowper, but uh, I've had on good authority. Everyone else tells me it's pronounced Cooper. Uh, so it's William Cooper. He was born in 1731 uh, near London. His mother died when he was six years old. And subsequently, his father sent him to boarding school. In 1749, at the age of 18, he began training to be a solicitor, but his heart was never in it. But three short years later, Cooper sang into the first of his great depressions. He recovered uh, to a certain extent, only to be hit by a complete mental breakdown in 1763. And at that point, he tried three different ways to commit suicide. All of them failed and was assigned into an asylum. But it was in the asylum where he met Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, who was a Christian. And through Cotton's uh, testimony, but also through the Bible, uh, Cooper became a Christian. However, his conversion to Christianity didn't make him immune to further uh, depression. Uh, He suffered two more periods of dark depression, and there was no more, there wasn't any happy ending for Cooper. In March 1800, uh, during his fourth and final pause of, of dark depression, he told his doctor, I feel unutterable despair. On the 24th of April, he was offered some refreshment and he replied, what can it signify? He never spoke again and died the next day, age 68. Where was God in Cooper's life? Why did he let him go through all that? Why didn't God do something? And if you're a Christian going through a dark period in life, you may be asking those very same questions. Maybe not as dark as Cooper's life, but you may be asking similar questions. Where is God? I'm going through the mill here. Why does he do something? Maybe if you're you're fathers, you know that you love your children. If you see them suffering, you will do anything to, to relieve that suffering. Why doesn't God do that for us? And if that is you, then the book of Ruth is for you. It's for all of us. And my prayer is that it would be particularly precious to those who are going through darkness at the moment. So first understand that we'll all experience darkness in life, verses 1 to 5. So as the story opens, the narrator lets us know that the events of Ruth happen at the time of the judges, verse 1. And as 
And the time of the Judges was not a great time in the history of Israel. So it was the period of time between the conquest of the Promised Land under Joshua uh, and the coronation of Israel's first ever king, uh, King Saul. That was a 400-year period where actually, instead of a king, they had these judges, these local heroes that were raised up by God to rule uh, Israel. And it was a time when the nation of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and just spiraled downwards into moral and spiritual anarchy. Some of the things that are written in Judges are X-rated. Go around and have a read of them. It is an awful time to live. Life in Israel was a bit like the American Wild West. It was violence, it was lawless, it was anarchy. But we're also told that there was a famine in the land, and that's spiritually significant. Because before Israel entered the promised land, the Lord God had warned them if they continued to do evil in sight, then he would inflict punishment on them by bringing famine on the land. And this was God's way of warning the Israelites that they were heading for spiritual disaster. And the purpose of the famine was meant to shock the Israelites into turning to the Lord in repentance and faith. It was saying, turn back. You're, you're going wrong. Turn back. And so in the midst of this spiritually induced famine, we're introduced to one small family uh, in, the, in the town of Bethlehem. Elimelech was the husband, Naomi is the wife, and their two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And if you're a husband or a dad, can you imagine being Elimelech and just watching your wife waste away from the famine? Or hearing your two sons cry themselves to sleep because they are starving? Can you imagine that? It must have been agony for Elimelech. So when Elimelech hears on the grapevine that there is food in a nearby country, he does what he makes a decision which, on the face of it, looks really understandable. He loads up his donkey and moves his wife and his two sons eastwards, out of Israel, uh, to the neighbouring country. And it seems as though Elimelech is making a very sensible decision. He's going where the food is. Uh, he's going away from the famine and he's going where the food is. But all is not what it seems. Because the Lord God had also promised that if the, if the Israelites continued to do evil in his eyes, he'd bring famine on the land. But he also promised that he would forgive and lift the famine if the Israelites repented. And so the godly response for Elimelech wouldn't have been to get out of town or get out of the country. The godly response would have been to him and the rest of the Israelites to repent of their sins. But instead he leaves the country. And Elimelech's choice of country, of destination, is a little bit shocking. He chooses to go to Moab. Moab, of all places. It would be a bit like a family from South Korea uh, moving to North Korea. Because there was bad blood between Israel and Moab. So when Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt towards the Promised Land, they asked the kingdom of Moab, can we use your road network to get there? And the Moabites refused. They said, no, you're not going to use that. And the Moabites opposed Israel in so many ways. They hired a spiritual hitman, Balaam, to come and call down spiritual curses on the Israelites. And that failed. So they had another tactic. They sent their sexiest Moabite women to go and seduce the the Israelites, to turn them away from the God of Israel, to turn them to their own gods. That worked a little bit better if you were a Moabite. But perhaps the worst thing about Moab was that they did not worship the God of Israel. Instead, they worshipped a God called Chemosh, and this God was so vile that he demanded that those who worshipped him sacrifice their children to him. 
And Elimelech goes there to Moab. And so when Elimelech and his family begin walking the road from Bethlehem eastwards to Moab, it wasn't just a physical walking away. It was a spiritual walking away from the Lord God. There's lots of irony in this chapter. Elimelech literally means, my God is king. doesn't quite seem like it as he moves away from God's promised land to Moab. And Moab may have promised bread and fullness, but it wasn't long before disaster struck. Elimelech died. And poor Naomi must have been devastated as she buried her husband in Moab. That must have been devastating for her. But life went on and Marlon and Kilion met and married two of Moabite women. And once again, these were just small steps away from the Lord God. In the Old Testament law, the Lord God had forbade any Israelite from marrying a Moabite. Because God knew that the hearts of the Israelites would be turned away from worshipping him to worshipping the Moabite gods, Chemosh. He says, you've got, to, you've got to sacrifice children to worship me. And the Lord God's not, not for that. He's against that. And it's interesting, both couples have 10 years of, uh, of, of, we- of married life. There's 10-year wedding anniversary. Significantly, neither couple have got any children. Did you notice that? They both had to endure the pain of childlessness. But more pain was to follow. Marlon and Kilion died in Moab, leaving Naomi completely on her own. And Naomi must have been plunged into deep darkness. In the space of 10 years, Naomi lost her husband and her two children. Those are three funerals you do not want to have to to go through. And so when the darkness fell for Naomi... It fell very hard. And the experience of Naomi pictures the experience of believers. Because as we read Ruth, Naomi is a true believer in in the God of Israel. And as Christians, we too can go through periods of deep darkness. There may be times when we go through periods of deep darkness because, like Naomi, we've taken small disobedience, consistent steps away from the Lord Jesus. For example, a Christian may experience the darkness of being addicted to pornography because over time they move step by step away from obedience in Jesus by just lusting after images they shouldn't be doing. But you may be experiencing darkness in the Christian life and it has nothing to do with sinful or unwise choices. Uh, And that might be the majority of us. It may be the darkness of unwanted singleness or the darkness of having to endure chronic illness that just grinds you down daily or just the darkness of of loneliness, going back to an empty home when you'd rather it wasn't, wasn't empty. And so following Jesus does not make Christians immune from experiencing prolonged periods of darkness. Like Naomi, some of us might be screaming inside, Heavenly Father, what is going on? Why don't you do something? You're all powerful and you love me. Well, do something. And yet the darkness remains. And if that's you, then the good news of the gospel in the book of Ruth is that there was hope for Naomi and there's also hope for us if we are going through darkness at the moment. So let's read on. Second, turn to God in the darkness of verses 6 to 18. And you could understand that Naomi just asking that question through the tears. Has God abandoned me? Is it all over for me? Uh, Can I ever go back? But God hasn't abandoned Naomi. In the midst of her darkness, there is just a glimmer of God's grace. Do you see that in verse 6? 
the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And so the Lord had shown his grace to his people in in Bethlehem by lifting the famine in Israel. There's bread once more in Bethlehem. But God's grace doesn't stop there. Even though Naomi's far away in the enemy country of Moab, even though she's gone there and God would not want to have gone there, God is gracious enough to make sure that she hears that there is food once more in Israel. And so on hearing that news, Naomi makes a swift and gutsy decision, verse 6. She, Naomi, and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, prepared to return home from there, return home to Bethlehem from Moab. And the word return is really important. It appears nine times in in chapter 1. And the word, it signifies repentance, turning away, realizing I've gone the wrong way, and I need to turn around and go back towards God's. And so Naomi's return to Bethlehem is a journey, not just a physical journey, it's a journey of repentance. It's a spiritual return to the Lord God. So as the three women begin trudging westwards toward Bethlehem, Naomi must have been stealing sort of anxious glances at at her two daughters-in-law. Why? Well, they were Moabite women. The Israelites, they were the enemy. What kind of home would Bethlehem be for Orpah and for Ruth? They might have been treated with scorn or hatred, prejudice. There definitely wouldn't be any hope of them finding a husband because the Old Testament law banned marriages to Moabites. And so Naomi concludes that their quality of life would be much better in Moab than in Bethlehem. And so verses 8 to 10, she tries to persuade them to return to Moab. Verse 8, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord God show kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And so all three of them break down in tears. It's an emotionally charged situation. But both Orpah and Ruth are removed in their determination to go with Naomi to Bethlehem. So in verses 11 to 14, Naomi tries again by painting a picture of how tough life is going to be for them in Bethlehem. Verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And Naomi's uh, words have an effect They persuade Orpah and she kisses Naomi goodbye and turns back eastwards to Moab to go home. But verse 14, some beautiful words, Ruth clung to her. And so Naomi tries a third time to persuade Ruth to return to Moab. Verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And the way Ruth responds to Naomi is both courageous and beautiful. Do you notice that? Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me be ever so severely if even death separates you and me. And Ruth sacrifices all 
her security to cling to Naomi. She sacrifices ever going home to Moab. She says, where you die, I will die. So if Naomi dies before her, Ruth's not going to go back home. She will die in the same place. She'll stay where Naomi is and die there. She sacrifices seeing her mum and dad ever again. She sacrifices being part of a culture of a people that she's been born into. She also sacrifices the worship of her gods. She used to worship the gods of Moab, Chemosh and others. But now she has committed herself to the God of the Israelites, the God of the the Lord Jesus. And both Ruth and Naomi are pictures of repentance. Ruth is a picture of someone who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and places their trust in him for the first time. If you're looking into the Christianity and wondering, what, what does it mean to become a Christian? Then look at Ruth. She's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to trust in, in the God of Israel, to trust in the Lord Jesus. Trusting in Jesus means turning away from anything else that you worship to worship Jesus instead. And yes... It's a costly decision, but as we'll see in the end, ultimately, Ruth doesn't make a sacrifice. Ultimately. Stick around to see how that works out. Naomi, on the other hand, is a picture of of someone who is a believer in the God of Israel. Someone who's a Christian, who hears the good news of grace and turns to him in the midst of darkness. And so perhaps there are Christians here tonight who know their darkness is somewhat self-imposed. Because like Naomi, they've consistently made unwise or ungodly decisions in the past. And you fear that Jesus is done with you. He's written you off. That he'll never have you back. And the beautiful news of the gospel in Ruth is that the Lord Jesus still wants to shower his grace and love and mercy on you. The Lord God brought bread back to Bethlehem and made sure Naomi heard about it. It's not by chance that you're here tonight. You're here because your heavenly father wants you to hear him say to you, won't you come home? Won't you come home out of Moab? Come home back to Bethlehem. I know Moab promised fullness and it didn't deliver. There is a home to come back to. Come home. It's not too late. My grace is sufficient for you. And look at what Naomi does. She returns in repentance to the Lord God. Naomi's modelling what we should do. In the midst of our darkness, uh, he is full of grace. And the, and the question is, if you have walked away from the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, won't you return to the Lord Jesus tonight in repentance and faith, looking at what Naomi has done and seeing that as a model for you? The Lord Jesus is full of grace. In fact, there's more grace in the Lord Jesus, then there is sin in you. Will you not come home tonight in repentance like Naomi did? So third, trust that God is sovereign even in the darkness. That's the verse 19 to 22. And so Naomi and, and Ruth just trudge on until they reach Bethlehem. And I'm sure Naomi would want to slip into the town unnoticed, but that's not possible Everyone sees her returning and it causes quite a stir. The women wonder out loud, verse 19, can this be Naomi? Now, Hebrew names usually have a meaning and Naomi uh, means pleasant. If you have a look at the footnotes in your your Bible, you can see that. And that makes the women's question all the more painful. Can this be pleasant? 
It certainly looks like her, but she's a haggard old woman. She's a bag of bones. Can this really be Pleasance that we, that we saw go away 10 years ago? And in reply, Naomi says some uncomfortable words. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, which is a Hebrew word that means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. By which she means she went away with a husband and two sons, and, but has returned alone and empty. They're, they're dead, buried in Moabite graves. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons, and she says that it's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord who's afflicted her and brought misfortune on her. I wonder what you make of Naomi's words. What do you think about them? Some of you might be thinking, look, you know, Naomi's been through a lot. You know, her mind's probably clouded with grief um, and it's heavy with you know, darkness. She doesn't know what she's saying. But if that is the case, then I'm sure the narrator would have added a comment making clear that Naomi had spoken out of turn about God. But he doesn't. And we're left with the conclusion that Naomi speaks truthfully about God. The reason she walks back into Bethlehem without Elimelech, without Marlon and without Kilion, is because the Lord God has brought her back empty. And Naomi's saying that God was sovereignly in control when Elimelech, and Marlon and Kilion died. He hadn't, lo- hadn't lost control. He was in control there in Moab. And I wonder how you react to that. I wonder what you feel about that. I wouldn't be surprised if a number of us find that a hard truth to stomach. We, we just don't quite like the idea of being God being in control when dark things happen to us. Such dark things as just three close family members dying. But when the Bible talks about God being in control, it makes clear that God's sovereignty is controlled does not mean he is directly responsible for evil. But he does say that he is in sovereign control when evil occurs. He hasn't lo- uh, let go of the controls. He hasn't fallen asleep. He doesn't just step back and say, you get on with it. He is in control. And we might not like that idea initially of God's sovereignty, but the alternative is terrifying. Because the alternative is a God who relaxes or loses control over his world. And if the God we worship is hands-off or is weak, then how can we ever trust him with the big things of life? How can we ever pray to him to change things uh, if he says, no, actually, I'm hands-off. You you get on and and do do what you want. And I know the sovereignty of God will raise all sorts of problems in our minds that one talk won't be able to answer, but we lose something huge, massive. We lose a massive comfort if we deny God's sovereignty. And what we lose is summarized in, in, in many ways, but summarized in one verse in Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's uh, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, um, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so if we deny God's sovereignty, if we say he's hands off and is not involved, then the dark times in our lives have no meaning or purpose. Ultimately, they are futile. But verse 28 of Romans tells us that God works for the good of those who love him in all things. 
God works for the good of Christians in past exams as well as failed exams, in, in beautiful marriages and broken engagements, uh, in the birth of a child but the death of loved ones, in, in broken homes, divided families, car accidents, childlessness. God works for good for those who love him. And perhaps the greatest example of this is the worst thing that has happened in human history. And that is man killed God when he came to earth. Just listen to how the Apostle Peter describes that event. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, the Jews, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So wicked men were responsible for killing God by nailing Jesus to the cross. So in three hours he died. But the sovereign God was still in control. Do you see that? Uh, by, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And look at the immense good that's come out of the darkest time. The Lord Jesus uh, paid for our sins. That Although we may go through dark times, that darkness will not last forever. And so if we're undergoing deep darkness, then our minds may be a haze of many different questions. And yet with the truth that God is sovereignly in control, we can hold on to one thing. The darkness we're going through is not meaningless. It's not futile. We may not be able to see it. We may never be able to get an answer to this. But our Heavenly Father is working for our good and for the good of others. He's not thinking just about us. He's planning a thousand moves ahead. He's doing things that we cannot see. And we can see this in the Naomi's life as chapter 1 comes to an end. So Naomi returned from Moab, verse 22, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So Naomi was right about God being in sovereign control. But there was a sense in which she wasn't quite accurate as she talked about the Lord God. Because she said that God has brought me back empty. Not so, Naomi. Standing alongside her is that courageous Moabite woman, Ruth, who has declared her faithful, loyal, unbreakable love to Naomi. I wonder what role she's got to play in the next few chapters of Ruth. But you know, the darkness can often blind us to the glimmers of God's grace that break through the clouds. Naomi is uh, not alone. Ruth's there. Maybe a little bit awkwardly standing there when Naomi says, the Lord's brought me back empty. But added to this, Naomi's return from Moab just in time for the barley harvest. And as this story unfolds in the next few weeks, the Lord God is going to fill empty Naomi in more ways than one. And it is a beautiful picture to see. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you about uh, William Cooper and the darkness he endured. But what I didn't tell you that Cooper was a poet and a writer of Christian songs. Uh, and one song he wrote is particularly relevant for Ruth 1. It's also very poignant if, you've, if we've understood what Cooper went through through his life. And it's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Here are some of the lyrics. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rise upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage to take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with, in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. 
Behind a frown and providence, he hides a smiling face. Brothers and sisters, if you are going through dark times, then God has not forgotten about you. He loves you, and he's sovereignly working out good for you. And you may not be able to see it or even feel it, but behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the tunnel may be dark, but by God's grace, it is a tunnel and not a dead end. And there is light and hope at the end of the tunnel. So trust him like Naomi. Cling to him like Naomi in the darkness. She won't have all the answers. Uh, She won't have all the answers until chapter 3, chapter 4. But God is working for her good. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's true of you as well, not just Naomi. So as I close, let me reread those those verses. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray together as we, uh, as, as we close this part of the service. Heavenly Father, we praise and adore you that you are a sovereign and mighty and gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you that you are powerful enough to use the dark times we go through for good. We thank you that you use the darkness of the crucifixion of your, your own son for our eternal good. Father, in the dark times when we can't see Uh, see clearly help us to turn and look at the cross to see how you can uh, bring good and mercy and blessing out of evil father we pray for those who are going through a dark time at the moment please would you be especially close to them enable them to keep on clinging to you and father please use ruth one to remind them that, that you've not forgotten them rather you're working for their good in ways they cannot see or feel at the moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.